Five architectural firms are now at work on proposals for a brand new museum for the Navy. For why the Navy will build a new museum and its history and its vision for that new facility, we turn to the director of the Naval History and Heritage Command, retired Rear Admiral Samuel Cox. Admiral Cox, good to have you on. Uh, good morning. Pleased and to be here. Good to have you in studio here. And let's begin at the beginning. Why a new museum for the Navy? Well, two primary reasons. One, we already have a fantastic museum, but it's in a building that was never intended to be one. It's an old gun factory, so the environment is not good for the artifacts. The primary reason, though, is because of the security on the Navy Yard. It's very difficult for the American people to get in, so we're not meeting our mission of telling the story of the U.S. Navy to the American public. Yeah, I've been to the Navy Yard. It's easy to get out, but pretty hard to get in down there near the ballpark in Washington, D.C. So where will the new facility be located? The new museum will be right outside the Navy Yard, about a six-minute walk from the uh, Navy Yard metro stop. All right. And as you face the Navy Yard, to the left or the right? If you're looking south from M Street, it'll be to the right. Okay, so or, yeah, if yeah. you're looking towards Anacostia River. Yeah, and so you're going to an area that is already pretty heavily trafficked relative to years ago down at that part of D.C. That's correct. It's one of the hottest neighborhoods in D.C., and that's one reason why multiple studies identified that spot as being the best spot in the entire United States for this museum. Part of it is because of the traffic that we'll get, and that adds to the mission of what we're trying to accomplish. Sure, and at lunchtime, the staff can walk over to the salt line, you know, and have a Narragansett. Probably Absolutely. they don't do that Absolutely, and, and the civilians, the people, can come into our cafe and gift shop and help defray the cost of operating the museum. And you narrowed 37 possible firms down to five that are in competition for the design of this building. One of them I noticed was Frank Gehry and Associates. He's known for really avant-garde, off-the-wall, so to speak, types of buildings. So fair to say the Navy is going bold on this one? Well, we hope. At some point, the uh, artist is going to collide with the engineer, and the building will have to be built to Navy force protection standards because safety of the public in there will be our number one priority. But this was called an artistic ideas competition. It's not the actual final design competition. That'll come in later after the foundation raises money to do it. So it could be one of these five firms, or it could be someone else who actually gets the contract, if you will, to build it. We were pleased. I mean, these were high-end, global, incredibly accomplished firms that expressed an interest in doing this, which was quite gratifying. Yeah, federal projects are actually attractive to architectural firms because over the years, the federal government has done some leading architecture, believe it or not, you know, for the general public often doesn't realize that. And just a question on the financing, what is the estimated cost of this and is there any appropriated funds or is it all private fundraising? The estimated cost over the course of the museum, which will be built in phases, so not all at once, but, you know, a high-end museum in Washington, D.C. area is going to cost $400 million and upwards. This will not be taxpayer dollars that build the museum. This will be raised by a foundation that's set up specifically to do that. Now, after it's built, the Navy will staff and operate the museum like I do now with the current museums, uh, and the Navy will maintain the museum. But the foundation will also continue to raise money via the gift shop, parking, things like that. So they'll be able to continue to defray the operating costs of the museum. 
We're speaking with retired Rear Admiral Samuel Cox. He's director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. And just briefly, you are a retired officer, of course, and now you are a senior executive service employee, correct? That's correct. Uh, At the Heritage Command. Give us the quick overview of the History and Heritage Command. Well, within the United States Navy, we took everything that was history-related and combined it into one actual command. It's a Navy command. And having a civilian like me in charge of a Navy command is pretty unique. But we're responsible for the Navy's official history programs, the operational archives, library, the Navy's collection of art, photographs, rare books, weapons, 1,100 display aircraft that are around the country. And kind of unique is the federal executive agent for the Sunken Military Craft Act. So I'm responsible for 3,000 U.S. Navy shipwrecks and 14,000 aircraft wrecks that we try to keep from being unauthorized, pilfered. Right. They are sacred sites for the nation. Yes. And with respect to what you mentioned as some of the artifacts, clearly everything the Navy has in its stores will not fit in any museum. So what will be the selection criteria and what are some of the unique requirements for a naval museum versus, say, where you would hang the Mona Lisa? Well, we still have much of the same issues that any other museum would have. You need a very high tolerance for environment, humidity, temperature, things like that, in order to preserve artifacts over the long term. We also have a process where we rotate artifacts. You know, Some will last forever or practically. Others are very fragile. And if you keep them on display too long, you'll actually severely degrade the artifacts. So there's a science that goes into how to do this. Certainly the selection criteria for artifacts, I have about 500,000 within our main collection, and we have 10 other museums, most fairly small affairs, but we have quite a few artifacts to choose from. And we'll be looking for those that tell the most profound story about the history of the United States Navy. Try to find those that have a personal connection because people connect to other people. And rather than just having, hey, here's a thing, here's a story that goes with it and a person that goes with it that is compelling. And some of these artifacts are quite large. I think I read in one of the releases the top part of a submarine, the part that sticks up. That's great. The sail, actually, sail, which sorry. has the, the bridge. Uh, and that's the part that sticks up above the water. And it's the sail of the USS Honolulu, which happened to be the command for two officers who became chief of naval operations and another, uh, Cecil Haney, was African-American four-star. So it was very successful at producing uh, admirals uh, you know, coming out of that particular boat. All right, so a lot of people might want to climb in there while they're going through. And do you sense that as a smaller percentage of the population actually will have served in the military, in some ironic way that increases the interest in these types of museums? I think there's kind of a cyclical thing going on here, kind of a renewed interest, for example, in in World War II, where, you know, the grandchildren of those who served in that war asked their parents, well, what would grandpa do? And and they don't know because that generation tended not to talk. And now they're going to museums, they're reading our books and whatnot and, and learning about what happened before. Any other interesting artifacts that we can look forward to, by the way, that will be definitely in there? It's hard for me to choose. There'll be many. We'll have a Dauntless dive bomber. You wonder, well, why an airplane? It's like, well, you know, you command the sea by commanding the air over the sea. And the Dauntless was the aircraft that turned the tide of World War II at the Battle of Midway at great cost. 
these were aviators at a time when the, the nation was not ready for war, and they paid with their lives in order to stop the Japanese advance, but they did. Uh, so there's, you know, a credible story about valor and also a preparedness, you know, like don't be caught like that again, that goes with that particular artifact. And what are our timelines here? When would you like to see the doors open? We would like to do a groundbreaking ceremony for the U.S. Navy's 250th birthday in 2025. That'll be dependent on how fast the foundation can raise the money. It's a heavy lift. That's an aspirational goal. We'll see if we make it. And by the way, any Marine Corps exhibits in there because they have their own facility looming over Route 95? They have their own. Uh, however, you know, the entire history of the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps has been very closely interwoven. So uh, we have the fighting top of the USS Constitution, which was a frigate during the, the War of 1812. And it was Marines on that fighting top with their rifles shooting down at the other ship. And then throughout World War II, you know, many of our operations were amphibious in nature. So it'll be focused on the Navy putting the Marines ashore as opposed to what the Marines did ashore. But there's a close relationship there. All right. We'll look forward to it. Retired Rear Admiral Samuel Cox is director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive aboard with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.